0: Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and each week I bring you a conversation with an interesting vet. We explore topics from benefits to business that will educate and inspire you and put more money in your pocket. This week, I'm talking with former Navy officer J.D. Modrak. J.D. is currently a director at CASA and is close to a VA loan expert, as I've found, We talk about MBAs and how the value of an MBA could be offset with drive and experience, his time stacking VA loans and why now may be the best time to use a VA loan despite where interest rates are, and the state of short-term rentals. Why or why not they may be worthwhile. If you're looking for more of this content, I write a weekly newsletter every Saturday with content recs, deeper dives into episodes and more. You can find that along with episode transcripts in the YouTube channel at scuttlebuttpodcast.co. Please enjoy this conversation with J.D. Modrak. One of the things that I want to start off with uh, was something you said in an email back to me. Actually, you said that hopefully we can keep the first half of this conversation, which was what was pertinent to your background, time in the Navy, to sub 10 minutes. So maybe let's take 10 minutes talking about why you don't want to talk about that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I want to get to the meat, man. Uh Like veterans can, uh, especially myself, we we can talk about each each other and ourselves all day sometimes, but, um, I don't think that's where I can add value to the audience. Um, I don't think my, my, my path in life necessarily has all, has been all that special either. Um, uh, I've been given a lot of things, you know, whether it was getting into the Naval Academy or GI bills and, um, VA loans. And like, I, I, I attribute a lot of where I've gotten to, to either luck or just kind of. Um, mistakes, frankly. So, uh, you know, I don't want to spend a ton of time going through my background and any like deep lessons that come out of that. Frankly, if there's any lesson that comes out of my background, it's like totally okay to have no idea what you want to do with your life. And even if you think, you know, not ending up there is totally okay as well. Um, So (laughs) that is so, so accurate. And it's always funny
0: to me, like talking to people, they come on and I usually over time like the introductory segment of the show of like kind of just at least getting a very very small glimpse into the background or whatever has that used to be half half of the fucking show like and it is just slowly like and I think maybe after hearing it so many times exactly what you said is like each circumstance despite how we like our our own main character in our own lives like what you have going on probably is not that unique. And it's um, that isn't to like degrade people. It's just like, Hey, like this is something that happened and here we are today. And what can we do with it?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the only thing I, uh, I don't for sure regret about my time in the military. And you asked for something that I was like proud of. Like, I, I think like, and I don't have that many regrets either, but like the friendships and like, the camaraderie, like I still stay really in touch with a lot of my friends from, especially the Naval Academy, frankly, um, but also the Navy and uh, grad school, like just veteran connections that I've made every couple of years, I've made a new close friend. And, you know, my partners in business, our military, a lot of my kind of job opportunities and investment opportunities in life have mostly all come through vets. And part of that's because I just implicitly trust vets, probably over trust vets. And, uh, I just feel like I've had a ton in common with them and, uh, they're really easy to connect to. So like, you know, I still call a lot of Naval Academy buds and now increasingly a lot of West Point and Air Force folks and, uh, people like that, just super good friends and people I want to spend a ton, a lot of time with. And I'm really appreciative of that. You know, it's something that like, I think a lot about kind of prioritizing versus like the other things in life, like money, um, career, things like that, that I'm trying to like, frankly, purposely, uh take let take a backseat uh priority wise in life going forward so
0: it's another level of rapport that is difficult to replicate and i think that if you're not using that background whether it be you know the naval academy is even another level of that you've got kind of military experience and then there's People that maybe don't do the military, but they talk about their college experience and their fraternity brothers and whatever. There's all of these different unique differentiators that are kind of advantages in some way, especially in the professional world. People in your pocket that you can call and say, hey, or like another level of trust that you have that just
1: makes things go fast and smooth when you need them to. Absolutely. And like people, you know, talk a lot about how veterans aren't a large part of society. But I mean, from a fraternal perspective, they're the biggest group in society, right? Like, I can't name a group of people that feels uh, uh, like a patriotism towards one another and a fidelity towards one another in a way that's as connected as vets. That's also as large. Um, So I think it's a huge advantage in life. And it's one I, I frequently take advantage of and try and give back to at the same time. So.
0: Do you enjoy telling people that you used to drive aircraft carriers for a living? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, dude, why not? Um, I, like, It's one of the few things. If you're a SWO man, you don't have a lot to hang your head on. So uh, I try and make the best of every job I've ever had. And frankly, some of them were a, a lot less fun than the one I have today. And being a SWO is probably closer to the bottom from most of the day-to-day aspects. And Uh, You know, frankly, I've spent a lot of time recovering from a lot of the habits I learned as a SWO. We used to have a saying saying the SWOs eat their young, Um, you know, and my job after being a SWO after business school was making every aircraft more efficient, meaning squeezing more seats on the planes and you know I try to find ways to uh, make light of what were not necessarily the most fun jobs at the time so yeah. So we have you to blame for the lack of,
0: and and, I mean, we meaning everybody above six feet tall have you to personally blame for why we can't fit our legs in between the seats. You got to be
1: like six, one plus, but like at United Airlines. And I mean, it wasn't my idea, but it like ended up being something I spent all day staring at for 18 months of my life was how to squeeze more aircraft seats on the plane. So yeah, it was, it was not, it, it was that job you were just talking about in that. It was the perfect job from a culture perspective. United an amazing company, um, a work-life balance perspective. It was outstanding. One of the best. I had one of the best schedules of any post-MBA guy I, or girl I knew. Um, and uh, the pay was pretty good from an hourly perspective. It was outstanding. And I, it allowed me to go do you know other things in life. But at the same time, man, like it's funny. I hit a wall. I was like, 40 hours a week is still a really long time. And if you don't love what you're doing, um, it's longer than you think. Uh, and even if you're having a great time with the extra two or three hours a day that you get outside of that, uh, the other eight hours still matter a lot. And I realized that after a couple of years at United, uh, but I'm still super appreciative of them. I learned a ton and it's weird how many airline nerds there are in the world. So I I get a kick out of talking aircraft with people still from time to time.
0: It's funny. I've been on like this journey of kind of like self-discovery and, acceptance and understanding my time in the military. And certainly while I was in and even the following years after returning to get my degree, I was dead set on the fact that I it was a time thing, exactly how you mentioned. I said the Navy took so much of my time and my life. It was a 24 hour a day job for the four years that I was in. And that just was too much. And You don't have to go down that road very long before you you go to school, you go get a regular job and you're like, you know, exactly what she said. 40 hours a week is still a lot like that is it's it's not that much different. And I look back on some of my experience and and just think, man, I was so dumb to think that that was actually what I was not enjoying about it.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I tried consulting for a minute and I was bad at it, luckily. So that wasn't going to be a path for me in life regardless, but the hours were brutal. And I looked at the consulting work like balance. And I realized like, this is the reason I got out of the military. And it's the only reason I'm still confident I would get out of the military again. But to be honest with you, like, I think if I had a better mindset while I was in the military, which is not something they coach well to um, I probably wouldn't have been as miserable. I think I would have been much more happy. Uh, if I just took a different approach and a little bit more of a positivity mindset and like, um, the way I approached my peers and like the way I did my job, like, and frankly, I think in some ways as a SWO, at least I can't speak for the entire military. Like negativity is almost rewarded in the, at least in the SWO community. And like, uh, that doesn't get you very far in the real world. So I, I think looking back, a lot of the reasons I wanted to get out when I was in are not, we're not good ones. Um, but I'm still good with the decision. So why do you think that that negativity is rewarded? I like
0: couldn't agree with that statement anymore. And I have told this story on the podcast before, but I remember so vividly so many mornings sitting on the mess decks of the ship and there's a new person down sitting, eating chow with us. And they're just kind of scared. You know, they have no idea what they're doing. It's the first time on a boat. Like it's, it just is feeling weird and scary. And People gravitate towards new people to just like inject them with that negativity. Like it, it's just like a disease almost, and they like want them to like come be miserable too. Like come the misery loves company idea. Where do you think that that comes from? And like, is there an answer for it? Do you think?
1: Man, um, you know, whatever answer I give, I'm sure it will be vastly insufficient. I think. It's a whole combination of things. The military, obviously, culturally is always going to be a certain number of years behind uh, the rest of society. And, and, you know, maybe for good reasons and bad sometimes. I think the positivity mindset is definitely a bit of a newer thing. The, the prioritization of emotional intelligence is, you know, probably always been an advantage, but it's never been such an explicitly studied part of leadership, I think. Um, and it was certainly pretty nascent when I was in the military and people had just been starting to talk about. Uh, you know, it's not very unique from a lot of the leadership traits that the military does train to. um, But the military definitely allows, and at a minimum, it often allows bad behavior. Um, And and then in some cases, especially certain cultural climates on ships, I think even encourages it. And My second ship, I saw the reversal of like my first, where my first ship definitely like screaming, you know, getting spit on because somebody was so close to you while screaming and Um, I'll never forget my first boss. I think my, like, I don't know, first week on the ship told me that he was not upset with me. He was upset with my parents and some people just shouldn't fuck quote unquote. Um, and I I just couldn't believe the way people are allowed to talk to you. And he was seen as like a pretty high performing Lieutenant commander on the ship. And, uh, you know, the guy who was another Naval Academy guy, a couple years in front of me was like, well, it's all on, you now, man, like, I'm glad he's not going to hate on me for the next two years. Like he's been hating on me for the last 18 months. And it was just like such a weird mentality and I can't fully explain it. There's like um, certainly a lot of different contributors. This is the officer enlisted dynamic is I think really unhealthy at times. Um, I, I think that all aspects of the military have this though, in some way, shape or form and misery does love company. Um, and what we're doing sucks. <laughs> like it's really not fun. I think it's easier than the army and, and, and the army's easier than the Marine Corps. Um, but I, all those jobs are really hard. So it's just, you know, the negativity breeds and, um, it has a place to live and there's not a lot of outlets to get rid of it. So, um, I'm, 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 I'm sure it's getting better and I hope it's gotten better. And, uh, it's just, it's just weird looking back on it now. Cause it's almost such a foreign thing.
0: The few outlets that do exist for, angry people in the Navy are uh, usually not good ones. Uh, the <laughs> drinking, drinking culture is so bad. And uh, yeah, there that's just one. There are several of them, but that's the, the one that's first and foremost on my mind.
1: Uh, yeah. There's this weird thing that happens on a ship. You, you're almost in a new society, right? I think about this all the time with like the fat Leonard scandal and like the normalization of like prostitution and, um like all the weird shit that you see like a surprising number of sailors get into overseas and may t- partake in yourself and like um like the drinking especially i used to say to people like man i've seen a bar in every port um and that was the first half of my career and i, I did one deployment well two my final two deployments without drinking for the most part and it was very different like I, I saw a really different part of uh those cities and those countries because my my choices had to be different to enable that and like frankly the first non-drinking deployment I did was not by my own choice. It was like, I'm going to get myself in so much trouble that if I don't, if I don't stop drinking on this deployment, I'm, I'm really going to start risking my career here. So, um, it, it was just no longer acceptable for a lieutenant to kind of like be going as hard as I was. So I was like, I just can't drink. Uh but yeah, it was pretty normalized. Like you can get yourself in what would normally be close to felony level trouble important in, in another, uh, overseas, like even as an officer, frankly, and like kind of just, at least back then you could kind of just get thrown in your statement for a day, have a talk with the captain, and everything's back to normal. Once you're back out to sea, it was kind of weird. Yeah,
0: and this is kind of probably the last thing I'll say on the matter, but there's an interesting dynamic from the enlisted side, especially looking at E7 and above. There is not an E7 and above who hasn't gone to mast. Or like the, the amount of them is so small that it just like, and there's something about that. And, and maybe it's just the people who stick around long enough to like, you know, th- there were few options. And so I had to stay in. I, I don't know. There's a whole lot of things it could be, but there is something to that kind of like not as bad of outcomes thing. And uh, I think on a long enough time scale you see, and it leads to problems like recruiting issues. And they're certainly feeling that today.
1: Yeah. I mean, the military gives you a lot of incentives to get out and the people who are uh, willing to take the risk on going to gain those incentives are often your most capable. Uh, and that's a problem that they, I, I still, it's a nut they still haven't cracked. And I think in some places in the world, it's accelerating. So it's it's a scary, it's a scary thing, place they find themselves with recruiting as their pool starts, continues to shrink too. So, you. We're telling me that
0: you've got some mixed feelings about going on to do your MBA. What are your thoughts about that? Was it worthwhile endeavor? Would you go back and do it again, given the choice?
1: Yeah. So it's so hard to say too, right? Like, you know, and nobody can give you like, maybe some people will give you super confident answers in this in the positive direction, likely because um, either they're, they're just smarter than me, better than me and use their MBA to better effect. I think um, it depends a little bit on what you prioritize. And if I had been smarter on what I really wanted to prioritize, both from a long-term life perspective as well as from a what I liked working on perspective, I probably wouldn't end up doing an MBA again. Um, but you know, the as your calculus changes, I think your like your viewpoint changes in a way you never could have changed when you're like 27 to 32 years old making that decision. Um I I doubt anybody looks back and regrets it. I do not regret getting an MBA. And I think I'm saying that from a position where I'm enjoying many of the things that came with the MBA, right? Like certain opportunities for jobs and uh network that I can tap into that um, writes pretty good sized checks for like my day to day real estate business, like that kind of my partners run. Um, and so it's easy to say, I'm not sure I would do it again, what the costs of not doing it again would be. I'm not sure. But um, I have some friends who are incredibly successful without the MBA um, and they had two extra years to get there. And they went into some pretty cool jobs that certainly don't require an MBA like sales. Um, and, you know, even in real estate, which is where I'll end up finding myself, like my my partner who's better and smarter at real estate than I am, Andrew Durazio, West Point guy, like he... Uh, has no MBA talks about getting one all the time. And I don't know why he would want one. He's, he's better at business than I am. Um, and he just has like a real killer instinct and like, he just knows how to get shit done. Uh, and you don't need an MBA to figure that stuff out. Uh, it definitely is a nice way to level up and level set a large group of people to a common set of training and expectations. And it's a, it's a very useful label but it's also very expensive and it's two years of your life. And it's frankly two and a half years of your life because it's six solid months to prepare for getting one. So or to get in rather.
0: I have found that I'm a very systematic person and I enjoy recipes for things and have like been on this hunt for like what the recipe for success is. And you see a lot of the you know, obviously that's extremely foolish and I'm like coming around to like understanding that that's not exactly realistic, but that is, that's the observation here is like, there are even something as prestigious as an MBA from a really top school that you went to. Like the, like the fact that you can feel that way about it tells me and reassure, should reassure people that there are, it just is different. For everybody, there are some people that need it and maybe would benefit from it. And maybe others that maybe if you've got the drive and the connections and all of those things already, and if you just channel that into something early enough at that time component, is a really big deal of that, that it kind of ends up making up for it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also a nice forcing function, right? It forces you to focus on your like professional career for two to two and a half years for 40 to 60 hours a week and have no job. Um, So it creates this massive amount of space for you to do that. If you were to focus on any professional career for two straight years for 40 hours a week, and building a career, like, I don't care if you want to become an electrician, if you learn how to be an electrician for two straight years for 40 hours a week, you could probably at the end of that time launch your own three to six person electrical company and make as much or more money uh, as any MBA coming out. So um, I also think that the inputs to the MBA program are Self-fulfilling prophecies, right? They're seven fifty MBA like GMAT scores, and they were probably tops in their classes and in respective institutions, and they were already really good at what the, whatever it was they were doing before their MBA. So, like, I, you know, it's mo- as much correlation as it is causation on behalf of the MBA. So,
0: yeah, no, it, it, there's so many interesting dynamics there, and you make a really good point about dedicated time and effort like that, that certainly is no mystery, like dedicate that time to anything and you'll be really good at it, whether it's school, your professional career, or, you know, spend 40 hours a week making TikToks and you'll probably be pretty damn good after
1: a little while. Especially on the stuff that matters to employers, but shouldn't. Uh, So like resumes and interviewing skills, like you spend 200 hours, if you do consulting or banking, Practicing interviews. Uh, Show me somebody who's changed jobs even five, six times in the last 10 years who has practiced interviews for 200 hours. I doubt it. Right. But the MBA leaves you no choice. And you have these uh, affinity groups and these study groups that, like, you get together. You know, I had a, a Marine and a Submariner, and we met every day nearly for three straight months and did two to three hours of cases. Like, those were super valuable practice. I didn't need an MBA to go do that. It just put me in the right atmosphere and, and, and gave me the time to do it. So I, the funny part is like, I'm probably better at getting jobs than I am at doing jobs. And I have my MBAs thanks for that. So uh, like th- th- they make sure that you're really polished on the inputs to go get those jobs. Whether or not you excel in them when you get there is I think a lot more based on your background and long-term experience and stuff like that and your EQ than necessarily whatever it was you learned in school. So
0: Let's say that you were going to try to coach somebody to one of the things that you just said, you're talking about how it's, it's a forcing function and that like, you didn't need business school to go and like study cases for two to three hours a day, but sometimes like... for those of us like speaking to myself that are hard headed, uh, I'm doing this graduate program right now because I wanted to learn how to code. I had all of the time in the world before this and couldn't force myself to do it, uh, but I had to like put myself in a program so I would learn. And I, I hate that. Like I, I wish that I was not like that and and had the ability to do it innately. Do you have any idea about what you would suggest? about how you could manufacture that without the forcing function?
1: Uh, There's a lot of ways. I mean, obviously school exists for a reason, right? It's an incredible forcing function. Um, And so are like, you know, boot camps, like the three to six month coding academies, et cetera. And, And those exist for numerous different kind of expertises. But like You still have to find some form of mutual accountabilities, uh, accountability buddies or whatever they're called, people who have similar goals, right? Like I think taking a step back and making sure you're really clear on your goals first and you're actually going to enjoy what you end up doing and you say you want to do. So like, I think more important first step is actually starting to talk to a lot of the people that are already doing that job. I tell veterans all the time that the best time ever is while you're in school Um, or transitioning from the military to cold call people because like if you say I'm either getting out of the military or I'm in a grad school program or I'm in an undergrad program and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life you'll get far more responses on LinkedIn from I mean shit CEOs even uh, like than you will ever get again in your life once you have a job and you're kind of seen to have ulterior motives but you have no I mean you have ulterior motives but people like want to help you when you're in that stage of your life. So you get this like two to three year period where like you can network your ass off. You have the time to do it. All dumb questions are forgiven. And like, I think starting there is important. And then once you are really pretty confident that you found found one, maybe two paths that you want to go down, finding an affinity group that can kind of help you get there. Find one or two people who are like within one to three years ahead of you uh, maybe a mentor that's five to six, but like I even find mentors much further than that. How do you like, they forget what it's like to be 30 years old and no fuck all. Um, so, you know, like finding a mentor, maybe more for the leadership and the life consideration side is really helpful. But for the day-to-day actions and business stuff, finding somebody a little more proximate to you is helpful. And then having one or two people who want to do the same thing you do and just checking in with them all the time. Um, I think it's not a coincidence that in real estate, at least, A lot of the people who are really good at this stuff have a lot of just very loosely built relationships and connections that they're just constantly talking to and learning from. There's not a ton of ulterior motives. Does it eventually sometimes turn into a deal? Yeah, but it's often just like having a well-built network that can support you on the business side, but also you just kind of constantly learn from. Um, And it's just it creates like a nice atmosphere where. You're constantly trying to learn and get better because people around you are doing the same thing, which is like what business school creates on crack, right? Like, it's just a bunch of people in a gigantic, very well-enabled rat race. So, you know, you have to kind of self-create that.
0: What were the one to two paths that you foresaw saw yourself taking as you were entering business school and how has those changed over
1: time? Before business school, I invested in and did a internship of sorts at like a sustainability startup. Um, then neither the investment worked out, nor did the long term life path into sustain. Like I even I went into consulting thinking I would do that for a few years and then either launch my own or go into like a sort of sustainability approach. And I, like I kind of got turned a little bit Um As I got closer to the problem I realized that I didn't like the industry as much as I thought I was going to. Uh, There's a decent amount of bureaucracy and there's a decent amount of just kind of puffery beyond the actual like real hardcore uh, things I thought I'd be able to get involved with if I went that route. From after consulting, I had no idea what I wanted to do, and that's how I ended up at United Airlines. Uh, That was not a natural stepping stone towards anything. It was like, what's going to teach me the hard analytic skills I need? Going to give me a reasonable work-life balance? And by that time, I'd already kind of found the VA loan, found a sort of creative way to stack VA loans with other veterans and buy even bigger assets, and wanted to do that um, with my side time. So I knew I needed a job that was going to give me the extra $15 a week or whatever to work on the other stuff. Um, and I'd found Airbnb at that point as well. So I knew I kind of wanted to combine this VA loan Airbnb thing. And so, um, by the time I finished the MBA, I was probably less clear on what I wanted to do with my career than when I went in, if I'm being perfectly honest,
0: uh, means you're asking good questions.
1: You know, it's funny. Like, I think one of the worst parts about MBA is that, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to trash getting an MBA. Um, I just want people to be more clear eyed about it. Uh, the worst parts to me, though, is that within, I, literally, I think before I started classes, I was going to official networking events and getting evaluated by potential employers. And my God, like, especially as a veteran, dude, the MBA is this incredible place to go explore and meet people you, who do things you've never even heard of before. If you are already narrowly focused on one to two industry sets or company types before you even start school, you, you lose a lot of the ability to do that exploration. Um, I feel like a broken record saying this, that, you know, I used to work at service to school. And I said this to so many candidates, like, always keep your aperture wide open, like regard, even if you are recruiting for something, be open to other things, take internships that have nothing, you know, during school internships, that have nothing to do with what you think you might want to get into and try a lot of stuff. Uh, Because like, you're never going to get this like two year trial period again in your life. And like, you know, most of my friends didn't get into top three consulting or banking firms necessarily the first try, at least. And I guarantee if they never got into one, they don't look back five years later and regret it. It's like, it's literally, it seems like the end of the world then, and it's not. And in fact, they might be doing way more interesting stuff now. So um, it's funny, like, we keep looking for the next stepping stone, the next way to move on up in life. And like, sometimes I think you let the really cool opportunities sometimes blaze right by you because you weren't looking for them. So,
0: Weren't looking for them or they appear in like unconventional ways or that it kind of looks like it's maybe a divergence of the path, but sometimes like you highlighted, those are interesting opportunities to, I mean, (laughs) I felt very similar going back to school and being like, because I went for finance as my undergrad and was like, thinking that I'm going to be this Wall Street kingpin, you know, like doing the whole thing. And then like my last year, like took this weird class in like coding. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like, this is my thing. And uh, it just the entire purpose of like going to college, they talk about this like exploration. And I think that it's even more applicable for vets, especially if they're getting out and thinking, or at least I had the feeling of being behind and like being dead set on like, oh, I need to catch up to the other people that were maybe ahead of me as if it's life is this grand competition,
1: you know? It's, you know, it's a healthy feeling in some ways, but like if you don't dwell on it too long or have it for too long, it becomes truly unhealthy, you know? Like uh, you're never going to get over this either, or at least if you're as dumb as I am, you're not. Like, you know, I have a peer at work Um, who is better at her job than I am, and she's only been there six months. Um, it's pretty easy to figure out who she is because there's only two of us with this job at Casa. But, uh, you know, she spent a long time at Amazon. I think I'm two, maybe three years older than her. Um, certainly, like, have a slightly better background and number of schools I've went to, and probably started managing people earlier. At you know, three four years ago, that probably would have really bothered me. Um, you know, and uh, but now when I look around and I see the job she's doing, and I'm just like, I've realized that like, I still have so much catching up to do uh, from both like a maturity and professionalism level at times, as well as like, uh, like the rougher edges to rub off and um, also just the business world. I'm, I'm still not fully grasping it all yet. And I've been in it for five, six years now. So it's not something that you just catch up on immediately. And if you never do, at least you had a hell of a good time in your twenties. You know, like uh, worst case, like I certainly don't envy the people that did go straight into finance and consulting and just grind uh, without a single medal on their wall to show for it. And, you know, they've seen three countries and I'll, I wouldn't trade that, you know? So um, it, I think it's okay to be behind and like being behind means you want to get to the top. If you don't, if you get detached from the idea of having to get to the top, you're, I think you're a lot better off. So
0: A few minutes ago, you were teasing, uh, talking about stacking VA loans. And I think that that tees up the story of your pin tweet on Twitter, (laughs) which I think would be a good introduction to uh, real estate and and hear maybe some of your beginnings with it.
1: I, I think it's funny. I probably tell this story a little differently every time. And some of it becomes more or less true at some points and probably gets out of order. But uh, yeah, like I mean, a true
0: so, Navy story.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets a little bigger. I mean, I'm at like a 50 million dollar home that I started with at this point, but uh, uh, no. So, I was I was in grad school, and um, you know, like uh, truly emergent friend making strategy versus the very deliberate, right? Uh, and we were kind of out having a cocktail, I think, one time, and um, we were literally waiting on a restaurant next door, a really great spot in Chicago called Wasabi and the wait was just like two hours to get this ramen, man. Totally worth it, by the way. But uh, my wife and I are having a drink across the street. And my wife strikes up a conversation with a guy who I actually just saw yesterday for the first time in three years. And um, we start chatting with him and we ended up ordering some chicken wings and not even leaving this bar. And we didn't even end up going in and getting the ramen. And this guy was just interesting. He had like a real estate background. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, oh, by the way, like I got this rental down the street. And I my, my job, his real estate job was taking him to LA. And he's like, I would love it if like a couple of people like you guys were ever like willing to move in or if you have some friends in grad school that would want to move in. It's kind of a perfect apartment in this part of town. And we're like, shit, we hate our apartment. So, you know, we went over, checked it out. And while we're talking to him, he's like, I also got this Airbnb and it's just a rat hole in the basement. And like, I'm like, I think I know what Airbnb is. I've stayed in those once or twice. This is like 2014. And I was like, we'll run that for you. I'm like, I work 35 hours a week. I go to school for 12 hours and I do homework for 20 hours. Like I don't even have like a full-time job. Uh, And my wife also didn't, she had just transitioned to Chicago out of the Navy as well. So uh, he, he offered us half of the revenue to manage it. And I was like, we'll even take a quarter. Cause I was like, looking at the numbers. I'm like, a half's not even fair. Uh, And we started managing it for him and I just got interested in it. And I was like, I want to run your pricing. I want to do your guest comms. Like I, originally it was just arranging the cleaner and like making sure shit was done and like repaired down there. I had done a little bit of property management to that point in my life and was interested in it. Um, And uh, dude, after a few months, like for the following season, I was like, yo, Jonathan, can I take over your account just fully next year? um, And I'll stick with the 25%. I'm pretty sure I didn't even change the percentage on them. And I'm like, I think this thing can make a lot more money and I'll make more that way. And he let me take over the pricing, which was probably the most important thing. And often is the biggest mistake people make in the early stages of their short-term rental life. Um, and this thing went from maybe doing 12 to 14,000 a year to $30,000. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this apartment is worth a thousand dollars a month. And if that, and it's not even a legal apartment in Chicago, you're legally not allowed to be a landlord in this thing. And I was like, gosh, and now this year it's doing $30,000 in revenue. It's paying more in rent, this 600 square foot rat hole then the 1800 square foot newly rehabbed two and a half bedroom that I was living in, I was paying like $2,000 a month. I was like, this, this thing is making a ton of money. It doesn't make sense. Um, so I, I kind of started to do the math. I'm like, what would it take to buy a few of these? Um, and, you know, did some research on the VA loan and realized that like the VA loan only authorized you at that time. It's different now up to like five, $600,000 in Chicago to buy an apartment. And that wasn't enough to get one of these two unit buildings. And I frankly wanted like a four or five unit building. I uh, wanted to like, I just didn't think it was worth running one Airbnb. I wanted to run three or four or five. So I did some further research and figured out you could like, at that time you could combine your VA loans. You don't even need to anymore. They remove the caps. Um, and then be eligible for like $1 million plus VA loan. If a partner of mine. So I, I went to a few guys at Booth. Uh, found an Air Force veteran who was one of my closer friends, probably one of the first people I met actually at grad school. Here. Uh, and he also probably really didn't know what he wanted to do post-booth. He was like, for sure going to start some sort of company, ended up starting that company, doesn't do it anymore. Is now an airline pilot. So just as an emergent strategy as I had, but we both were like, this seems kind of cool. So we did our homework. We kind of just like back then you didn't have like air DNA and all these things you have now, but we just kind of like watched the listings in town and saw what they were selling for and built like this. I mean, now embarrassingly shitty model to figure out how much money they could make. And um, we found a lender who luckily kind of came to campus who was willing to like underwrite us on an offer letter. And we, you know, found a place, I think we toured 50 homes Uh, and we got four rejected offers and our fifth offer got rejected as well. And like a week later, we're driving around seeing more places. I think we were doing this probably three to five hours a week, just torn homes. And, uh, some guy called us back. He's like, Hey, your rejected offer last week. Are you guys still interested? We need to tear the roof off. So it'll be a while. We got to fix the place up, but the last offer that beat you dropped. And we'd like to take you guys. We like your story. You know, you just didn't offer enough. They're like, but we'll give it to you for your offer now because we got to make these repairs. And we took it. It was a million dollar place. We were supposed to be putting down fourteen thousand dollars to buy this place, and it was doing I don't know six or seven thousand dollars a month in rent. Our mortgage payment was two point seven five percent. We were going to be paying like three grand a month, making four grand a month on L- LTR rents, which is long term renters, or like frankly, we we're going to turn them into short term rentals. And we thought we'd make ten grand a month. Um, about three weeks before I closed, maybe. Uh, the BA loan thing fell through. It was technically legal, but it doesn't matter if what you want to do with a loan is legal. You still have to find an investor to buy it. And no investor is going to, not many investors are willing to give you a million dollar loan for 13,000 down at a 2.75% interest rate. And you've, it's a multifamily and you've never owned a home before. So we scrambled, figured out we were in an opportunity zone that enabled us to get kind of an interesting loan product. And that loan product also allowed you to have a second investor on the home. So we begged the selling agent to ask the owners of the home to lend us like 150 grand. Uh, And we gave them a kind of a nice interest rate. We did some light research online on sellers financing and it worked like uh, they sweat us out for a week. It turned out they were actually just on vacation. They weren't making the decision. They just weren't checking their fucking emails. We're friends with them now. So we know the whole background and uh, we got this seller's note. We owed a bunch of money on that every month. I think. We owed $800 on that. We had to get a new loan at a higher rate. So we owed $3,500, $4,000 on that. Um, so we lost some space in the deal, but we knew we were going to do Airbnb. So to, get, to, to add insult to injury, I used a self-directed IRA to buy all the furniture for the place. So like, I had done some research on that, figured out that I could like found a business with a self-directed IRA. And as long as I didn't own half the business uh, or more, I was allowed to use my IRA money to invest in the business um and so we bought all the furniture furnished the place and like frankly it just killed it for the next couple of years it was making uh it went from like maybe a $70,000 or 80 thousand dollar revenue building to like 110 thousand dollar revenue building um which you know is is pretty decent it's it's not killer we turned two units into airbnbs we kept one tenant in place cuz we liked the guy Um, He didn't leave until last year or the year before. We had him for six, seven years and uh, it worked out really well. We paid off that seller note about halfway in two years, 50, 60,000 extra pay down. And then we used the VA cash out, which is just an incredible product. It's like takes three weeks. You submit like six documents. We got a new appraisal done. The place increased in value a little bit over that first 18 months. And uh, the seller's note, we had paid down massively. And they looked at our revenues and they're like, yep, no problem. And they gave us, a, I think we now do pay that two, two, seven, five rate. Um, and they gave us like, I think we put in originally 60 or $70,000 with that new loan. It was a little more expensive. They gave us a check for like 200 something thousand dollars with the VA cash out. And we're like, holy shit. We tripled our money in 18 months. And we still owned 10 plus percent of this house, uh, based on the new note. Um, And we took that money, we paid off the sellers and we still have like over a hundred grand left. And we're like, all right, let's buy some more stuff. And Joey, my original partner and I have been using that same checking account. Uh, He bought another VA loan house because now you didn't need to, uh, they uncapped it. So he bought another four flat, same neighborhood, million bucks, almost exactly four units doing almost the exact same amount of revenue. Um, And we've bought a couple other assets since raising money with other vets, uh, not purely ourselves. And we're also co-invested on a short-term rental in Nashville. And like, literally, I mean, the dumbest example I can come up with is you got somebody gave you one seed and I plant that seed in a flower pot and then you know, the thing grows and I split it in half and next season, I split both in half and the season after I got a pot full of flowers and I haven't put a single other seed into that pot um and so joey and i split every investment 50 50 from that initial i don't know 25 grand we each put in 35 grand we each put in um and we now own slices of just in six years like slices of uh i mean seven or eight properties total um and a couple of them we own completely together three mm-hmm. of them so uh, it's been awesome and like all that started kind of just using the va loan um and you know there's like a couple of things I can cover detail wise that I think a lot of people, um, are fearful of or worried about. Um, but what I'm so curious about now is I'm trying to figure out like why more people don't do this. Uh, a lot of people use VA, don't use their VA loans at all. And a lot of people use them to buy single family homes. Um, and I think they use them at times when you don't have to, I mean, you don't have a kid yet and I've been making my wife live in multifamily for six years now. Um, And we finally just got our first single family home. And like, it was the best decision I ever made. I could, I could never save another dime towards retirement and wasn't particularly good at doing it before. Um, And in 30 years, all these loans will be paid off while in these, these buildings, and they'll make way more than our social security or TSP or 401k has ever could pay us. Um, So it's just like an awesome way to keep plowing money into a, a leveraged, but fairly safe asset that you have control over. Like I just, I don't want to worry about what, what fucking Elon Musk said on Twitter yesterday and how that's going to impact my 401k, you know, like I want to know if, you know, the evictions going smoothly that I have reasonable amounts of control over and um, rarely do evictions, but like, that's the worst case thing that can happen even as a landlord. But, you know, generally you just treat your tenants really well. They stick around and you make a bunch of money and it's great.
0: We have so much to unpack on that. Yeah, that yeah. Is that's like the whole cool. story. It's
1: a long one, but
0: that's quite the the story and introduction into real estate. And I can, it sounds like that is like a perfectly logical thing to keep pursuing after kind of a first <laughs> foray into it. So the first thing that literally flew ex- right in the face of everything that I thought about this uh, about like application of the VA loan. So first, I didn't know that you can, one, put them together and maybe that's not relevant anymore because yeah. it's uncapped. I want to talk about that in a second. But the first thing you said is that you guys went on it, in on it together. Were you, I thought that the whole point of using the VA loan is so that you can live there. How did you, what is the, I guess, is there some weird loophole or like, how is it no. that you're buying a place but not living there?
1: Yeah, no, we lived there, man. Uh, oh, you Joey did. Took okay. The basement, and my wife and I took the upstairs. So the fourth flat we found, luckily, um, had like a two thousand square foot house in the back. And Joey lived in the little six hundred square foot studio apartment in the basement. We shared the family room, kitchen floor, and then my wife and I had a guest room and a huge bedroom on the third floor, uh, which was certainly kind of lucky. But um, if you just had a normal dual income household, you easily could have afforded this asset. And you know, you and your wife could live there with three tenants out front. Um, do you want to do this with three kids running around? Maybe not, but um, up until you have your maybe your second kid, you could certainly get away with stuff like this.
0: So, this was a four unit place, yep. And then two of them, you and your wife were in one, and then your buddy was in another.
1: We actually had a full house, it was a three level in the back, and then a three unit building in the front. So, yeah, he lived, we all lived in the same house together post grad oh, school wow. for I think like about two years um, until job took us away from Chicago. Um, and the plan was always like, you know, you only one of the two people on, on the loan had to live there. And frankly, by the time we refinanced, the stacking thing was gone. So it would not have required both of us to live there. Um, we were not sure exactly what we were going to find. You don't really need to do this with partners anymore, per se, and certainly not partners that are both vets. In fact, it would be silly of you both to you—they wouldn't even let you both use your VA entitlement, which is why Joey since went and bought his own four-flat, lived there for a little bit, and then flipped it into a rental now. Um,
0: and the reason for the four multifamily is because that is the line of where the VA loan will cover. Correct.
1: Uh, for the most part, I've heard of some rare exceptions to this, but yeah, the four is considered non-commercial. And uh, like, I just call it maximizing your VA usage. So like uh, you can go higher in value than a million bucks, uh, but you start have to cover more of the down payment. Um, I, you know, it's funny coming back to the occupancy requirement. I think it's actually one of the best parts once you've done it of the VA loan, especially if you end up liking real estate ownership. Even if you don't, you're at least dangerous enough to know your asset really well and know how to fix a few things and know when a contractor is bullshitting you. Um, and so you you also are a 100% paying tenant while you're there, right? You pay yourself and you shouldn't be like pocketing that savings. Ideally, you're putting it into account. Like most of our cash flow was generated off our rent. We were paying ourselves at or above market rent for the whole time we were there. Um, and we put that in an account, and set it aside. We didn't just like, you know, live high on the hog. Um, but oh, you, so you
0: guys were actually using that as like, hey, we're you didn't just say, hey, we're gonna live here rent free. Oh, yeah, Absolutely like, not. Okay. That's I've an interesting. Nobody rent. has pitched it to me that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. You I think anytime you do a house hack, you should you should seek to pay yourself rent. It's it's a huge part of creating your cash flow for that asset. Um even if you end up using it to buy a Camaro, I mean, I would much prefer you use it to buy another house. But the it's pretty hard in a sub four unit house act to create the cash flow that you want if you aren't paying yourself rent. Um, you know, if you're like a family and you're just trying to save some money, um, maybe you go. You know, the equivalent of paying yourself rent is saving for the wedding or the kids or whatever a five twenty nine. But um, yeah, I I we fully have always paid ourselves rent. My wife and I bought another duplex in Minneapolis totally overpaid used the VA loan well though had an incredible interest rate rehabbed one of the units and yeah we were living rent negative in that duplex after we rehabbed the other unit but we paid ourselves full market rent for 2 years we paid off that rehab in 9 10 months and then that thing's been making about a 30% return for us since we bought it um and it wouldn't have made us any return really at all if we weren't paying ourselves rent so so
0: how does that now work with, you said, I want to hear about like the cap being removed. Like, what does that mean for anybody that's like trying to use it? And like that, I'm like thinking of somebody like, you know, E4 in whatever branch they're trying to go buy a million dollar yeah, yeah, yeah. house. Like that, I'm trying to like, imagine what that's like.
1: For sure. So, so obviously, okay. So caps, the cap you can spend on a VA loan is mutually exclusive from what you're allowed to purchase based on your income. However, in a multifamily asset, 75% of the income that you will get from the units that you will be renting also count towards your income. So even if you're an E4 only making uh, $40,000 a year, if you were to go buy, uh, you know, and listen, you're going to have to live in Fort Leonard, you can't go living in San Diego and buy a four unit, but um. If you were to live in a more beat up part of the country or uh, one of the many areas where we have bases, and you want to buy a five or six hundred thousand dollar asset, your average loan broker will tell you you can't afford a six hundred thousand dollar home. But you can, in some cases, afford a five six hundred thousand dollar home if three of your tenants are counting towards your income. So let's say every tenant's paying thousand dollars. You make let's call it thirty five hundred a month after BAH if it's a four unit building and every tenant pays a 1000 well, take a thousand off that. Cause you're going to have to live in one of the units, but $3,000 times 75%, $2,500 or so gets added to your income. So your 3,500, $4,000 a month paycheck goes up to six or 7,000. You actually probably do qualify for that loan uh, through mm-hmm. something called debt to income ratios. Um, and this is something like, I'm really curious about people's questions around this. So like I would reach out to like, I want anyone who has questions about these things to kind of reach out to me. Um, I want to start consolidating all this and think about how to organize this. One of the things that confounds me about VA loans, you can Google almost any question about a VA loan and you are like 75% chance of getting a complete shit answer. And, And it's because you have these two things that happen. Like all the sites that give information out are full of fucking ads and they're like, really hard to parse through. And then you also have all these mortgage brokers, which is, this is why I don't want to be a mortgage broker. They have an incentive to get you to buy a VA loan. And I think that that, they make a lot of money on them. Every loan type makes a broker a different amount of money. And listen, I'm not criticizing VA loan brokers because some of them are good friends and some of them are awesome people, but like VA loans are one of the most profitable forms of loan. And so the brokers will tell you what they need you to know in order to get you to use the VA loan. Um, And I always find their information to one, not be cited based on regulations and to the regulations to not be incredibly clear. And so uh, different lenders will actually behave based on the rules differently. Just because a lender, um, let's say it's a bank, which is like a pure player lender, just because a lender could give you the max VA loan doesn't mean they will. They may apply their own sets of uh, rules against it. So for instance, one of my favorite mortgage brokers is a close personal friend. His name's Tim Herman he runs a mortgage broker he called brokerage called up equity awesome veteran owned company they do a ton of great va loans for vets but like he has probably uses one of maybe the i don't know he says there's two there's probably 3 to 5 places out there that will lend a multi million dollar loan for a single family veteran um so you you know he just put a vet into a house last week for 4 or 5 million dollars and i think they put a few hundred thousand dollars down which listen i'm not pitching anybody to go that route by any means But 90% of brokers or more will not lend $4 million on a VA loan. But there are some who will. Um, So sometimes it's just a matter of getting the right resources. I'll be honest. Like I almost hate going on record about this, but I don't give a shit. I've bid out Navy Federal and USAA so many times and they have some of the most ridiculously shit requirements. They have some of the worst interest rates and they have some of the highest fees. And it's a shame because like where did 90% of veterans probably go when they want to get a VA loan? It's probably those two institutions. And they're not, they have really massive overhead and they're not offering great loans to veterans. So, and listen, I'm not a broker. I'm not here trying to sell any brokerage services, but I'm just trying to figure out how to like lower the friction and increase the understanding and get people to do this. Take that first leap. A lot of people are aware you can do it, but like there's so many fears around it.
0: mm-hmm
1: how does a vet
0: that's wanting to get a VA loan come to a conversation prepared with a broker? Like knowing, how do I know that Navy Federal is giving me a bad loan? How do I know to come and say like, oh, you know, you can you can offer me more than that, or this is what is allowed, or is it just a knowledge thing? Or I guess, how can we be showing up to those conversations educated about it?
1: I think there's a couple ways. Like you got to know somebody who's done this before and can give you the reference. And like this isn't even foolproof. Let me qualify, and can give you a reference to someone who it's like. Especially, I think like I mean, there's another guy I love. JD Kameen does like. I mean, I I almost hate to give the guy more business because he's crushing at doing this, but like great guy. And he like he just doesn't fuck around. He's not going to give you like a lot of brokers and, and frankly smartly sell so for their own bottom line. Read somebody. Try and understand their level of sophistication and quote them accordingly, and that's a lot of people in sales. Um, like people like JD Kameen, Tim Herman at Up Equity. When you when it's a veteran going in, they're not fucking around. They don't want you to go bid them out, but they're also just not going to give you a rate that's all that negotiable because they're coming in pretty low. They're not trying to make a ton of money on you. It's already a profitable loan that they're selling anyways. So if you can find somebody that's like, listen, I've already done a lot of this before. Here is the th- And there's three brokers that I generally go to where I know I really don't need to bid them out anymore. And if I do bid them out, I'm almost insulting them at this point And it almost never works. They're usually so cheap and they've brought their fees down so far that I wasted my time to go bid them out. If you don't have somebody that you either trust to make those introductions for you or you just want to learn yourself, I actually advise everybody to go get a bunch of quotes when they first start doing this because you got to develop the vernacular. You got to ask a lot of questions. You got to know the difference in all these fees and why they're being charged and whether they're negotiable. And like a lot of these fees and things like that can be just waived. Um, I mean, my broker, my favorite broker, he's a non veteran. And he probably, I've probably sent him an email a dozen times saying the same thing Hey, Russell, uh, I see all the fees in the um, closing disclosure. I just want to make sure are those are going to get wiped out. And every time his response is the same Yes, JD, 48 hours. I have to put all those fees in 48 hours before close like I'm going to wipe them all out, but I have to put them there to make sure I don't overquote you. It's just a compliance thing. And like it, my friends laugh at me at this point, because I always forget. And I always send them that, that email. Um, but like all those fees could show up if you don't know what you're doing and you can pay 2%, 3% of your loan value. If you let people nickel and dime you on the fees and the originations and everything. So um, I think it's, it's definitely worthwhile to take the harder route though. Um I remember my first call with a commercial broker and I was sitting there scratching my head. It wasn't long ago, by the way, it's like three years back, four years back. And I just, I had no idea what was said in the conversation. And today I understand like 50 or 60% when a commercial broker gets on the phone. I mean, like I can ask a lot of questions. Um, I can sound somewhat smart um, and I'm, but I'm still not there yet. And like, frankly, the only way to keep getting there is to keep calling more commercial brokers and learning about the different, Like it's not about, it's not all about rate. It's just like any negotiation. Um, You can can win on price or you can win on terms. Sometimes you can win on both. Um, And sometimes you want to find a balance. But as you get smarter, you realize that the length of the loan, some of the terms, and especially with commercial, not VA, you can get a lot of things that are more valuable to you than just the rate or the fees. But um, with VA, it's it's relatively straightforward. There's a lot of legal, we get legalities around it, but there's a lot of places for them to hide fees, especially within the interest rate.
0: My wife and I, we bought our first home about a year and a half ago, and it's a daunting process. And we used um, we went through Redfin, uh, which was by and large a really good experience. and like it was very digital native. We had a great uh uh realtor through Redfin who I could tell had our best interest and like was really good. But as we were going through the process, there were so many of these situations that came up, and he's like, you know, well, this is, this is just the next thing that you do. And like, not knowing any better, you're just kind of like, oh, I, I didn't realize I can actually go get other quotes from other places to compare. This is not just like, oh, th- you have to use this person. A lot of times they're the realtor has recommendations and they you're writing off of them, essentially, when you don't know better.
1: Absolutely. I mean, like, So full disclosure, there's not many ways I'm aware of I can make money in this quote unquote business uh, or the time I'm going to spend. But one of them, I'm sure I can, is by being a realtor in Chicago and specializing in finding homes on behalf of vets. Like One thing I should mention right now, like we've toured 50 fucking homes and lost four offers in a row. Frankly, five offers and the fifth one finally got approved. Right now, you will be like, you'll probably tour 10 homes and go one for one. It's the best time since I've been doing this and probably in the last 20 years to use the VA loan because you do not have the same competition that you had one anywhere in the last 10 years frankly.
0: Um, Is that because of interest rates?
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh and like listen, interest rates are not ideal. I'm not a, a sage. I don't know if they're going to go back down or not. Um I think that you should still buy a deal at the right price and make sure that you can indefinitely afford your payment and have some space between the rents and your payment, and you're gonna make good money on it regardless. But at the same time, we're still buying assets, assuming or hoping at, at a minimum, not, not assuming necessarily but hoping that rates do go back down. And gosh, if you buy a good investment and then your rate goes down by a couple points, it turns into a great investment. You can't do it assuming that's gonna happen per se, or guaranteeing that's gonna happen in order for it to turn into a good investment. But they say you kind of, you'd kind marry the house, you date the rate. Um, got to be careful. Like history doesn't say that it's necessarily true that rates are going to go back down. So you got to make sure it's a good purchase in the beginning. But um, yeah, I think the there's an imbalance, especially in the environment right now. Rates being high isn't the only factor. You have rates that are high and like a lot of people that are attached to higher prices. If you are a vet and you have some combination of tax breaks, which you can get, like, I don't pay property taxes in Illinois at the same rate that everybody else does. And So that's a huge advantage. And on top of that, I have a way better interest rate with my VA loan. So I have a huge strategic leg up against your average buyer. So I can afford to pay a little bit more uh, if I'm using a VA loan. And um, now, uh, frankly, before VA loans, one thing I will be clear about, a lot of sellers and and a lot of brokers do not want to use them because they're more complicated and people are scared of them. And I think the key is finding a good agent that can talk to the pitfalls of a VA loan, structure an offer that mitigates some of those pitfalls. And also just educates the other the other agent on the other side and maybe even the sellers about why you can make this transaction smooth despite the, the VA loan and some of the things that come with it.
0: You were saying that you using a VA loan, you have a lower interest rate. Is there something systemic that's driving that or is it just like uh, what <laughs> specifically is bringing that about?
1: Yeah, they're lower risk due to the insurance types on them. So VA VA loan is just not to get too basic here or anything, but um, VA loans are, it does not mean the VA is backing your loan and actually lending you the money, right? And you probably know this, but it's a form of insurance, just like private mortgaged insurance. And you're paying up front in fees. Ideally, you know, if you have like a light disability rating, even a 0%, you can get those fees waived. They are pricey. Um, but you are not having to uh, buy your mortgage insurance real time and have that payment every month in perpetuity or until you get enough equity in your home. Um, with an FHA loan, I think that PMI never turns off, and uh, they're also awesome loan types. But they also, because of their federal backing and insurance types, they just get better rates. I also think that you know, like I said, I'm not a broker, but I think that there's actually some federal statutes around the max rates that can be charged, and they're therefore a little bit more affordable. Um, they're, they're overall like almost always a half point behind what you're going to go online and see on lending tree or something like that. Um, this definitely assumes having slightly above average credit, et cetera. But if you go to a conventional loan, you're almost always going to pay a higher interest rate than you do VA or FHA.
0: You mentioned, or you kind of teased this for a second there, um, talking about how a disability rating can help you get out of some fees and maybe this will be one of them. Could you give us like two things that like you have to do as a vet going into use a VA loan and two things maybe that you should absolutely avoid and like, or maybe it's a question to ask or like, what are the two for sure's and the two for sure do nots? I feel like
1: first, first the answer is such a cop out, but man, I would never go into an investment of this size without talking to a bunch of people who've done it before me. Um, and that's where I want to help people and come into play. But I, I, there's a lot of people like me that have done this. So finding people, you know, like I w- I actually probably should tweet about this stuff more. I just don't find there's a huge veteran audience on Twitter. But, um, you know, like I think getting some conversations and some reps in. Um, I've done these a dozen or two times over the last couple of years. I love doing them. And inevitably afterwards, I'll send you my model, my due diligence sheet. A due diligence sheet that includes explanations on what you should check for. Um, and you just start to build a, a, a list of resources as well as like people that you can just shoot a text to when you come to a stopping point in the deal and you want some advice. Um, I think that's the first big one. The, the next one is, I think, um, really being deliberate about how you, if, especially if you're not familiar with your market, being deliberate about how you select your agent and how you select your um, mortgage broker. So we already talked about the mortgage brokers, the broker part, but the agent part is really important. If somebody came to me and they said, you're in Chicago, do you mind like selling me a home in Evanston? I'd have to probably, or buy me, help me buy a home in Evanston. I'd probably have to say no. Um, Especially if it was a four, three, four unit VA loan. You have to know the market you're buying in, even if you're buying a smaller asset like that compared to normal commercial investments, because it's so important to know the comps. It's so important to know um, the relative values of homes relative to how much they make in cash flow. And if you don't understand the relationship, what's called the cap rates between income and and, and price in those areas, you can make some really bad decisions. And one, one of the hardest things to recover from is paying too much for a house. Um, And, and that's actually exacerbated one of the worst parts about the VA loan. Ironically, at the same time, some people's favorite part is that it's high leverage. Um, So if you make a bad decision, a VA loan amplifies that bad decision. So I think that when you use a VA loan, high leverage, dude, we've made the big, like you said, you you went with Redfin. It's funny, Joey and I went with Redfin and they were a more nascent company back in 2015, 16. But we went with Redfin and we said, we're going with Redfin because we know that they their agents are not paid on commission. And they're generally far less experienced than your average agent. So we know that we cannot make any excuses. Like basically, we have to learn everything ourselves and check everything ourselves because we know that this is a junior agent. And by the way, all agents are different. So like, I don't care what company they work for. You can get good ones, bad ones anywhere. But Redfin was like known to have really junior people at the time. And the guy was younger than we were. Um, and been in the business two years. They sell multifamily, like most brokers are in there for decades doing that. So um, we actually ended up being a great agent, great guy, walked us through the process quite nicely, but we checked everything. We took everything with a grain of salt and went and got a second opinion on it. And that really helped us, I think, learn a a layer or two deeper than we normally would have had to. Um, But in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done that Like, I think it was actually a bigger decision than I was giving it credit for. And if I could do it all over again, I would go to somebody who already owned, either already owned or already sold a ton of multifamily assets in the very tight zip code that I wanted to be in, because I want them to know about everything coming on the market. And I want them to know like the back of their hand, all the comps and all the nuances between those comps that sold to make sure I'm getting a, a good to great price.
0: Other than like spending a bunch of time and like maybe turning that into your career, kind of like you have here, what is a way that we can get plugged in with people, maybe in the area if you're moving to a new area? Um, I, don't, I don't know if I would recommend uh, real estate Twitter to anyone. That's a very dark place. Um, that's obviously one if uh, last resorts, but like good resources on maybe finding and connecting with people that have done that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um it's God, you know, I feel like my my experience with this is so painted by just Chicago. But um one thing I would say is that nationally there's some awesome Facebook groups uh for veterans about real estate. Um one of my favorite it, it is actually not veteran-centric, but one of my favorite Facebook groups is called Living Off Rentals. Uh Kirby Atwell runs that, he's a West Point grad. One of the smartest guys I've met in real estate and also one of the nicest, coolest people. Um, And man, he just lives and breathes helping people figure out how to buy and house hack and do real estate. And uh, he runs an awesome Facebook group. You don't have to live anywhere specific to do that. Now, if you want to get really specific and learn the area, um, some veteran groups specifically are affinity groups to help you find agents. I still think you should find someone you really trust who's done this before and help them run you through a checklist of things to ask that agent. Because I'll be honest, a lot of these affinity groups are built off referral fees. Um, nothing wrong with that. And it's probably part of how I'll make my living as well, but that it's not enough. You, you know, as a Naval Academy person, like I wanna trust every Naval Academy person I, I meet, but I still would do some due diligence and make sure I'm asking them, them some questions and having some people help me build the list of questions on how to evaluate that agent for fit. Um, and, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, some really basic things you can do is say, how many VA loans have you closed in life, especially if you're speaking to VA, how many closed in the last year or two years that, you know, they're not that frequent. Um, can you introduce me to your last two or three VA buyers, ideally one or two of them having bought a multifamily, if that's what you're getting into, um, and then call those people and talk to them and, and learn about their experience. Um. I think that's really important. There are also just a set of questions you can build from both offline and like maybe Brock, you and I can like put some stuff together. But like, I think that we can templatize a lot of this kind of thing. So I, I'd love to hear from people if there are questions they specifically have um, on resources they would want um, and lists of questions they would want to help evaluate this. Maybe even it's a Q&A. It's like, uh, what is the question you should ask? We can provide that. But then also what, what are some of the outlines of what a good answer sounds like? what
0: do you want mm-hmm. yeah i'll uh i'll definitely put it out there on uh twitter and newsletter and all that good stuff and maybe can source some good like kind of intro questions cuz uh, this is all good stuff and like very concrete actionable things there's kind of i feel like if you're in the military there's like that one guy like that everybody knows at the command that's just like crazy the crazy real estate guy that's yeah. always talking about like house hacking and everybody just like doesn't listen to him and then all of a sudden you like get out and you're just like oh wow like i i totally should have done that like that guy was on to something and so um you might have been that guy if you got no, in I, I was a little earlier
1: i was plenty late to the game with everybody else don't <laughs> worry about it i you think all the been. time about what i could have done with my money differently as a junior officer uh that didn't involve as much Vegas or the bars of San Diego. So uh.
0: I had a, uh, a a very early guest to the show um, talk about like how he literally as like a junior officer, you get like a huge cash thing from Navy fed. And he said, Oh yeah, I took like 20 grand of that. Um, went and got my brother's 20 grand from his and we like went and bought this like 10 unit multifamily thing. And literally like year one, I have like, you know, 50 units and like their first year in, and I'm just like, I literally was living on $600 just like buying I, uh, beer on the it, weekend. Like <laughs> this is uh, what was I doing?
1: You know, it's crazy. It's like also made this a much more competitive space and made it almost more important uh, to do your diligence, to be honest. But I think about the amount of resources, even just five years ago, but much less 10 or 15 that you had online. Um, like I, I, there's a few places I wouldn't get my information. TikTok being the number one, one, like I, I'm in short-term rentals as a full-time job. Right. And the TikTok content that comes out is laughable to me. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, everybody thinks it's easier than it is, but and that's not true. Right. But on the flip side, there's a hell of a lot better information out there. And it is truly easier than it used to be. Um, and I, man, yeah, you're right. I wish I could use that loan I got from Navy Federal on something a little different than when I used it on. So uh, that would be awesome. I think about that all the time, actually, because <laughs> my real estate partner, Andrew, man, he started buying stuff when he was a first lieutenant. So, you know, no, 2 and the guy's probably got about 100 units now, um, and he owns half of them or so, like, just fully outright or a third of them. Um, you know, he's got a couple dozen down in El Paso, his first duty station, and they're great. They're they're great little cash flowing assets, and somehow he did it in between deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, like, he, he figured it out. It wasn't as hard as we thought it was, I think, so
0: stuff like that I have to like constantly remind myself I'm like we're all on different timelines you just learn it a little slower you're coming around to the game everything is going to be okay because it just is very easy to get uh hung up on like shoulda coulda woulda
1: you know it's funny like I wonder a lot about when am I going to stop because like I want to leave my full-time job to like kind of stop you know climbing the ladder doing the rat race and um like when is enough enough? And like, dude, it's got to be sometime before hundred units. And uh, for some people, I think it's like a thousand units. And I don't quite understand that. I don't understand w- what the thrill of that chase is. Like you're going to retire with way more money than you could probably spend if you just learn how to live a reasonable life. So uh, all that said, basically, I think you could start 10 years from now, do this for five to seven years and be fine. Obviously the earlier you do it, the less long you have to do it for. Um, because I think I could never buy another asset again and at least put a bunch of kids through college or something um, and 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 mostly have enough money to retire. And that's um, pretty lucky because I was a decent saver through deployments and as a, and, and maybe not as an ensign, but as a, like a JG lieutenant. And since then, but the, the 401k savings I did, the TSP then was not as material as what I've been able to do with real estate and mostly because of the loans, you know, so.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that that is a good insight there as well as kind of understanding that your wealth building years are later than I think you think. I think it's very easy. And I've found myself catching myself thinking about this, too, as like beating myself up because I wasn't contributing to my 401k or whatever when I was 17 years old with my first job. It's like, you know. Uh, everybody says like start as early as you can, but like nobody actually does start that. That's that's all coming from people that like, uh, you know, I wish that I would have done this little earlier. So
1: 50% of Americans have a negative net worth, man. Like if you have a positive net worth, not including your home, by the way, uh, that's one point I really want to make. Like nothing kills me more than people saying, Oh, I'm paying my, I'm paying my 3% off loan early." Like that really drives me crazy. If you're under 50 years old and nowhere near retirement, please God, if you have a 3% loan, put that money in a 4% like interest bearing account and make money on that. Like don't fucking pay off your loan early. Like there's good debt and there's bad debt. Um, really high leverage debt is not, even if it's for, uh, collateralized against a home is not necessarily good debt. But lower leverage debt with very low interest rates is great debt. It helps you lever up your returns um, and is very stable. Um, Most of the people that lost their homes buying a lot of property during the great financial crisis had variable rates. Many of them had multiple mortgages and a lot of them had something called balloon payments. Um, And balloon payments can really screw you. It creates a lot of risk in your loan structure. That is not what you get with FHA and VA loans. Um, They're very long-term, always the same payment loans. Um, and as long as you're really staying attentive to your asset and managing your cash flow and keeping your your, your place rented out in full, um, and you start with maybe six or seven months or build up to six or seven months of mortgage payments over time, as a cushion, if you ever have an eviction or something, you're going to be totally fine. You don't need to go paying that, that loan down faster and pay it off earlier. You can recycle that money, plant, plant some more flowers in the box be, versus like keeping the one flower you have perfect or, you know, growing faster. So
0: the world of short-term rentals has gotten like extremely popular over the last couple of years. I would be curious to hear what your like personal feeling and outlook is about what that's going to look like is I I feel like if I read one more article about short-term rentals, like the entire country, we're almost the entire country's living situation is short-term rentals. What what do you think that that looks like next couple of years?
1: So, I mean, full stop, short-term rentals are here to stay. I, I believe. Um, and so are medium term rentals, I call them. I actually think medium term rentals are, in some ways are more interesting because I think they actually have you- some real themes going on in society with like digital nomadism. But it, it goes way beyond that. People are much more mobile now and will need to become increasingly mobile. And that, that means this attachment to 12 month leases for 90 or 95 percent of our occupants in the country is probably not a good one. We will end up having to get more flexible, furnished living. And I think a lot of people in our generation don't really value like having furnished homes or don't really value furnishing their own homes and having your own furniture, especially until you're 30 or so. Um, so I think there's a real market there. Uh, what is not a good assumption is is like there's two huge dynamics that just kill me in short-term rentals. One, I think a lot of people believe that these COVID trends that have happened where like, you know, the desert parts of the country, your Floridas of the world, are just indefinitely good investments now for short-term rentals. So believing that where the wind happened to be blowing fast for a second is where it's always going to be blowing is very dangerous. So what that means is I think anytime you buy a short-term rental um, or buy an asset to turn into a short-term rental, you need to have a backup plan. Um, that's why I started with the big, boring long-term rentals, man. And because they're all now long-term rentals again. Uh, frankly, I just didn't want to deal with... it. Was, it's a lot of time out of your day to manage short-term rentals it doesn't make sense to just have one or two. You might as well do 10. I hate to say it. Uh, But once you're doing 10, it's like 20 hours a week. And um, yeah, it's more efficient and you're making a lot more money, but like you can't have kids and stuff like that. So it's kind of this catch 22. I think if you don't have a backup plan, you're taking a huge risk. Vacation rentals. And I make a big distinction between short-term rentals and vacation rentals. They're obviously like they all have 90 degree angles and like, they're kind of in the shape like this, but they're different. Um, because vacation rentals don't have backup plans. Um, if short-term rentals in that area become less hot or they become oversaturated, you're not flipping that into a long- term rental that covers your mortgage payment. And that's really dangerous. Uh, but short- term rentals in more like less vacation heavy markets or in more urban markets that have infinite or insatiable tenant demand are much safer. you have some upside. Um, but there is like real the, the second point is there's real costs to them like, the big one I want people to be aware of is there's serious long-tail risk to a short-term rental. Um, your tenants can burn your place down, but your insurance company will pay for that. If a long term, ten- short-term tenant burns your place down, Airbnb may and Airbnb may, may not pay you for that. And even bigger question with VRBO. Um, your insurance company certainly will not pay you for that unless you buy specific short-term rental insurance, which gets expensive. Uh, there are some other things you can do to mitigate risk. They're all expensive. As you start to mitigate that risk down, your margins go through the floor. I see a lot of the gurus talking about, I can make twice as much or three times as much um, on short-term rentals as you can on a long-term rental. It's absolutely not true. After your costs, uh, I think the best short-term rentals out there after costs are maybe doing two to two and a half. And that is a generally a very expensive asset in a pretty vacation-heavy market, which means two things. You probably can't afford it. And two, that asset has no backup plan. So you're being rewarded for the risk you're taking, not because you're some genius. Um, the 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 ones that are, in my opinion, a little smarter that do have backup plans, you're lucky to make about after costs fifty to sixty percent margins, which means you're making probably in the neighborhood of one point two to one point five x long term rent, um, which is not bad. Listen all day. You know, if you, if you want to do all that work for an extra one to $10,000 a year, whatever that is, no problem. And it may be a good idea for you. Um, but the average short-term rental owner these days is probably making like, if you were to track how much work you did, um, and you divide it into the n- amount of money you made on it for that year, you're probably making like 30 to $60 an hour. That's not bad. Um, but it's not like some game changing amount of money and you're sweating. It's not like a, it's not a low impact business. There's plenty of work to be done. Um, it's funny. I threw like my dad's house up this week for the PGA tournament. And uh, I got a booking in like one day. It was ridiculous. Um, and it was a two week booking and it's for three times more than I told my dad to expect to make. And now I think my dad thinks like that short-term rentals, like he should just move out of his house. Right. But it's the fucking PGA championship. There's six total rentals in Rochester, New York available because no, there's no money to be made in Rochester, New York on short-term rentals. Really. Um, there's a few few people making a go of it there. Um, and there's not many people that know they could throw their, their apartment up like or their house up like people do for the Super Bowl. Right. So it did really well. But now my dad, I, like I literally have aunts, uncles, cousins who are all talking about doing short term rentals. And it's just at this point, I probably have five or six family members and 30 friends who do them. And not all of them are doing as well as others. And and certainly like the word is out when that happens. It's like, Uh, what's the the market in 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 the the dutch rose the 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 dutch market where everybody starts buying roses or pet like uh and you know drives up the place the price of flowers like if everyone's doing it it may not be um as sustainable as a game as you think it is because you all start to compete each other out um you know we have a short-term rental in nashville that we bought i think was way too good to be true a few years ago And frankly, it would have done that revenue for a few years and then COVID hit. Um, So, you know, it survived COVID. We made some money um, and it it had a pretty good year this year. It probably made about two and a half times our mortgage payment after costs. I think, you know, and paying our manager, I think we made a nice 60% premium on our mortgage payment. But like by next year or the year after, I'm fully confident that we probably would have been better off selling this asset. Because there is like thousands of units of short-term rentals coming online in Nashville, and Nashville is a great market, like, but every year, every month, probably a hundred units are coming online. Sonder alone, um, which is a company I used to work for, has probably three to five hundred three or four bedroom units coming online. When we launched our three or four bedroom product, there's probably, I don't know, a couple hundred of them available in town. By two years from now, there's going to be a thousand plus of them for any given weekend, maybe more. Um, it's, you know, we're gonna get. We're gonna get kind of watered out of the market, and it's not always the getting is not always going to be this good. So if you want to go do them, I strongly suggest you familiar with familiarize yourself with the backup plan, or don't mind owning an asset in an area where you want to go visit it, and you can afford the mortgage payment and not make as much money. I think they'll always cover their mortgages or whatever, but it's going to turn into a slog. Um, that thirty dollars an hour might be twenty dollars an hour in a few years, um, and it always varies a lot by the area. But it, it's just. You know, having cleaned up after a meth lab now, having cleaned up after uh, a whole lot of parties involving human excrement and drugs and things like that, um, you know, th- it's fine to do that as a day job, right? Um, and, and I get paid okay for it. But uh, man, it would suck to have that happen in your own house, your own vacation rental. Um, and it does, it, you know, Airbnb doesn't want you to know about it, but it, it, some bit, pretty bad things can happen. So you got to go into it kind of clear eyed.
0: I think you called out a couple interesting things there uh one despite like whatever trends might be happening you still need to make sure that the numbers pencil and not be betting on any trends and then like saving you or bailing you out and then two understanding like if the numbers look so good like what are you being compensated for that isn't like you know explicitly stated there
1: yeah Thanks for summarizing. I'm not I'm, I'm pretty long winded, especially when it comes to short term rentals, because I think I've been doing it a while now, and I think everybody thinks it's a lot easier and a lot better than it is. And when you're forced to put a profit and loss statement against it and you're not just doing the work yourself, you're forced to hire employees to do it. You start to see very quickly and you have to have insurance for everything that like it, the game is not quite as profitable as, as everybody once believed it was. Um, you know, it, it's still, it, it's still a great play. I will still probably proactively occasionally buy them myself, but, um, it's certainly not something I plan on making like a one-off living on. Uh, but there will be people who crush it in the space. It's, it's not going anywhere, but it's not as easy as I think the gurus make it sound. So.
0: What is something that you have learned during your time at Casa that has helped you become more effective in the real estate world?
1: a uh, tons, man. It's probably the best job I've ever had. So, um, you know, I get to, I've, I've, th- there's a future of work element to CASA. That's really interesting. Um, we are a fully remote workforce and man operations, I'll never forget my better bosses in the Navy telling me to go down to my spaces. Right. And I lost a lot of weight, spent a lot of time walking throughout the ship, looking at everything. You can't do that. Um, in a highly remote workforce. And so it's been really interesting having to think about that problem and figure out how to. And keep engaged, build culture with, and like kind of check on, but not do so in like a creepy Amazon big brother way, what your people are doing. Um, I don't think we have it solved yet by any means, but it's been a pretty interesting problem. Um, We're also, I've learned a lot about the right way to approach like kind of a business plan. Like CASA has done some things that are rather smart from a risk mitigation perspective and how we structure our agreements. So, a lot of the gurus in Airbnb will tell you that, oh, just you don't even need to own an asset. Just go sign a lease. Well, when COVID hits or something else happens or people just decide they don't want to go to Myrtle Beach anymore because they can fly to Rome now. Um, You know, and I, I realize that the people that go to Myrtle Beach are probably not the same people that is go to Rome, but, you know, um they definitely are not. Uh, yeah. OK, fair. But like maybe the people that were going to Destin in Miami are now going to Rome. Right. And When those people do start resuming their normal travel patterns, you know, and the zillion seat miles that used to fly to China every year return, um, people's patterns will revert to a mean. And um, I think that a lot of these people that sign these long-term leases, they're going to pay them indefinitely. And it doesn't matter how much money they make every month under short-term rental, whether they're making a profit or a loss. CASA has taken more of a pro- pragmatic approach where when times are really good, we share in those earnings with our partners. And when times are tougher, we share in those, uh, those tough times with our partners as well. Um, and we have a little bit of a a strategy that doesn't force us to like have to make these massive payments, even if we're not making enough money to cover them. The good news is, is that often when I think the short term rental cycles are down, our partner cycles are down too, meaning their best alternative, the, the tenants that they could go get. Um, are not making them full market rent anymore either. So our, our partners are okay with taking a little bit of downside. So um, we've just structured our business in a pretty pretty good way that I think will make us more sustainable.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, the changing environment of work is, I feel like polarizing both ends of the spectrum, um, not in like a personal way, but like it's driving the remote people one way and it's driving the in-person people the other way. And it's kind of, it feels like it's drawing a line and, and I'm not sure how realistic a hybrid model really is long-term. You're, I feel like you're going to be one or the other.
1: It's weird. It definitely, it creates like a similar to an officer enlisted line, right? At a company, you got your field team and you got your kind of pie in the sky headquarters team. I think we do a lot to try and make sure that those lines don't become really solid. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the field. I don't get to do as much as I used to, but um, I think it's still important to really spend a lot of time getting out and learning the obstacles people are seeing in person. Um, I'm not one side of the fence or the other on whether or not remote work is a good thing. CASA has always been remote since I joined and pre-COVID they were remote. Um, I think there's a lot of advantages to it and it's great for talent attraction. You know, A lot of my friends think that it's better to work in person with people. I th- I certainly enjoy working in person with people more. Um, but it's pretty nice to grab a cup of coffee and go up to work and save an hour and a half of driving a day. So um, th- there's two sides to the coin, you know.
0: Absolutely agree with that. I'm a big fan of the uh, the coffee and the the drudge up the stairs to the office.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, once that kid comes along, man, you're gonna really appreciate the remote gig. I think for for a few 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 months, so.
0: I uh, I certainly think so. I uh, my wife is going to be doing like remote school, and I'm like working remote, and I'm I'm kind of have been realizing like later in the year this year that I've been missing people and kind of wanting and thinking about it, but that was kind of the nail in the coffin of like uh ah, no that ain't
1: gonna happen now.
0: Um, but yeah, we'll see.
1: I think you do if you get caught in a remote job, especially this is really felt during COVID. You have to find ways to force yourself out of the house still um, and make sure you're getting out into society and spending time with people you enjoy spending time with. It's really important.
0: If you had to summarize one big takeaway that we could learn from you and implement in our lives today,
1: what do you think that would be? Oh, man. Um, You know, I think that you know, I probably don't do a good job boiling. I'm sure I don't do a good job boiling this down, though. The further you get into something, probably the more complicated it sounds to talk, hear you talk about it. But um, I think viewing home ownership and viewing debt as a positive way, and ideally multifamily ownership as a positive way that is in your control to kind of give yourself a secondary hedge for your retirement is really, really important. Um, or is, is a really big opportunity, at least, and it's worth investigating. I don't think everyone has to do it by any means. Um, but I think there's nothing cooler than, you know, managing an asset, developing relationships with tenants, and at the same time, building some long term wealth that's completely within your own control. Um, and there's just a really great feeling about it. And I encourage everyone to at least give it a look, if not, get try it once.
0: J.D., this has been a super fun and insightful conversation. I know I've learned a ton and we'll have many follow-up questions, I'm sure. What can myself and or the audience do to be useful to you?
1: Yeah, Seriously, just reach out if there's, if there's any questions or, um, you know, if, if anybody wants to just grab some time and talk me through their fears or, um, you know, whether it's questions, fears, next steps, or like, let's build a game plan together. Um, I, I want to learn how to start doing this and better supporting people and doing it one-on-one. Um, and I really want to get people from that zero to one, that zero to that first, uh, especially vets. I want to get them from that, uh, no assets to that first multifamily asset. Um, and even if you think you're far away, the most important time to start planning to, to whether it's for a wedding or buying your first house or buying a multifamily asset is multiple years before you, before you actually do so. So even if you think it's far away, grab a hold of me, and we'll see if it might be a little closer than you think, or like lay out what might have to be true before you think you're ready to get there. So, um, would just love for people to grab time with me, honestly, so I can I can learn further about the questions they have and the opportunities that I have in my communication about this stuff.
0: Fantastic! It's not often you would get uh, somebody beaten down the door to say, "Come talk to me." So uh, I'm sure <laughs> that there will be some some calls there. JD, I sure. really appreciate your time. Thank you so
1: much. Yeah, cheers. Nice to see you, Brock. Thanks. Good luck cutting all this down, man. Appreciate it.